Hi, and welcome, or welcome back, to the Southside Baptist Church Podcast. You've probably heard the statement, great fences make great neighbors. Well, regardless of how you feel about that phrase, you've likely experienced the benefit of healthy boundaries in certain relationships, and the pain that comes with the lack of them in others. Join us for a sermon series exploring what the Bible teaches about boundaries. You know, what they are, how we should face them, what they teach us about God, and how we find the pleasant places he has for us inside of them. Enjoy. Good morning, everyone. My name is Philip Ashby, and this is my wife, Wendy, and I'm a deacon and small group leader here at Southside. This morning, our scripture reading will be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, through chapter 7, verse 5. If you do not have a Bible, there are copies in the racks in front of you. And today's passage can be found on page 882 of that Bible. We will also put the scripture up on the screens for you to see. And if you do not own a Bible, please feel free to take the Bible in the pew in front of you as our gift to you. Let us begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and for the stomach, for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and God raised the Lord, and will also raise up us up by the power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations? It is is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this beautiful day that you've made, and thank you that we can come to your house and we can worship you in song. And I pray for the message, Lord, that you would be with uh, Gary as he delivers these boundaries uh, to us, Lord, that we will take them to heart. And I pray as we leave this place, we will go out and be a light in the community that reflects you. And I just ask all these things in your name I pray. Well, thanks, Philip. You may have had the most awkward scripture reading uh, at least in the last year or so at Southside, so I'm not sure 
how you drew that straw, but I appreciate you very much for reading that with confidence. Um, Some of you didn't realize that was in the Bible. And like I tell you, you ought to read it. There's a lot of stuff in there that you... It's good, good. You ought to read it every now and then. We've been in a series called Boundaries, and this series is based on Psalm 16, but it's more than just Psalm 16. Throughout the entire scripture, when you look for this thread, you can see it woven in in all of the stories of the Bible, the idea of boundaries, that God sets up for us boundaries that mark out for us a place of protection and provision uh, that he has for us. And so Psalm 16.6 has been our verse. We'll put it on the screen. I'm going to ask you to read it with me again as we just continue through this series talking about boundaries. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places Surely I have a beautiful inheritance. And so we've been talking about different boundaries God gives us, and you can already tell from the scripture reading today that we are talking today about the boundary of sex and marriage. So some of you didn't realize that, or you wouldn't have been here today, uh, but now you're here. And it would be awkward to leave once I just said what I said. So I've got you for a little bit longer. Now, I I really think it's, in all seriousness, it's important for me to acknowledge what we all know, which is what's been going on in the news lately, as you've been hearing, uh, not just about the Catholic Church, but also... Uh, what has happened and been revealed going on in Southern Baptist churches. But we all also recognize uh, that because of the fallen nature of our world, this is something that goes on all the time. The sexual abuse that's being exposed. And I just want you to know, as the pastor of of a church, uh, how seriously I take this, how seriously our Council of Trustees take this. Uh, We recognize and know, as we're going to talk about today, that when it comes to human sexuality, there is uh, perhaps nothing that is more sensitive uh, and that can be more damaging uh, when it is misused or abused. And so just so that you are aware where we are as a church, we are an autonomous church. All Southern Baptist churches are autonomous churches. And so regardless of what problems uh, may be going on in other churches, we have been seeking to address this issue for a very long time. Uh, we have mandatory background checks that we require for all of our staff, for all of our trustees, for all of our deacons, for anybody working with NextGen. We also, as a staff and as leaders, are mandatory reporters, meaning that if we ever are aware of any abuse or an accusation of abuse, we are required to report that. We take that very seriously, and we practice zero tolerance when it comes to those things. We are about grace and mercy and forgiveness, but grace and mercy and forgiveness do not equate to a lack of accountability or justice. And so we take these things very, very seriously, and I just wanted you to hear that from me. Um, As all of this has come to light, we have uh, redoubled our efforts just to review our policies and to see if there is anything we need to do uh, just to be more sensitive about this. But we all recognize um, that this has gone on, and and while it has become public, uh, many of you sitting in the room today unfortunately, have been the victims of abuse in various situations. And we all know that sexual sin has permeated culture um, for a very long time. And it's not a new uh, concept or a new problem. Um, in some ways, our uh, hypersexuality in our culture has just allowed us to talk about it more openly. 
But just because we live in a culture that seems to be so hypersexualized, it doesn't mean that we're the first Christians to face this kind of a culture or these kind of problems. In fact, many of you may be surprised to know that the Bible was written, the New Testament was written at a time and in a culture that was very much like our own. Uh, the sexual promiscuity and the openness about sexuality and issues regarding uh, human sexuality uh, were very, very similar to what uh, we face and the challenges we face today. In fact, I found a quote by Marcus Tilius Cicero, who was a Roman philosopher. Listen to what he said and see if this doesn't sound like what you may hear today. If anyone thinks that, that young men, and notice he's only talking about men, if young men should be forbidden association even with prostitutes, he is certainly very stern, but he is also in disagreement not only with the permissiveness of this century, but even with the customs and indulgences of our ancestors. That was written in the first century, but it sounds like it could have been written today. First century Christians stood out in their culture for a lot of reasons. But one of the primary reasons first century Christians stood out in their culture was because of their unusual beliefs as it pertained to women, as it pertained to human sexuality, and as it pertained to the sacredness of the human body. This set Christians apart from everybody else. The Romans recognized and realized there was something very, very different about these people. They are, these are uniquely and fundamentally Christian teachings. In fact, still today, when it comes to the issue of sexuality and the issue particularly of women, if you look at all the other world religions and you look throughout history and culture, it is Christianity who has been the number one champion of women, who have been the number one protectors of women and children. And I want you to hear this because I'm not the only one who believes this. Many, many people believe this as our cultures drift further and further away from a Christian worldview it will be women and children who pay the price for that drift. Women and children will pay the price for a drift away from biblical teaching as it relates to human dignity, human sexuality, and ultimately human worth. Listen, I don't need to tell you because many of you in this room recognize this problem and you have experienced it firsthand or you yourself have struggled but men in the United States spend more than $10 billion a year on pornography. $10 billion. And this manifests itself in all kinds of ways. Human trafficking, specifically sex trafficking, and I'm not talking about prostitution. I'm talking about women who, against their will, are coerced or abused into using their bodies for the profit of others is at its height Florida is number three in the United States. Jacksonville is one of the top five cities. And these acts happen primarily, listen to this, these acts happen primarily during major sporting events in our city, NFL games, and the biggest event of the year when this happens is at the TPC, which will happen in about a month. We have a problem. And we as the church have to be bold enough to speak out on these issues. And I'm not just talking about speaking out about them in a condemning way or in a shaming way, but in a way that speaks biblical truth and why these issues are so, so very important. The New Testament has a lot to teach us about this. In fact, when most of the New Testament was written, it was being written to believers who are living in a culture with a lot of the same problems and a lot of the same struggles that we are facing today. 
Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. It's what Philip read for us earlier. It's what we're going to look at. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open back, back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because he is writing to the Corinthians specifically about this. And I want us to look at three specific things he says because I think this sets an important foundation for us in understanding what God has to say to us today about this subject. First of all, he talks to us about a divine design. He talks to us about a sacred union. And finally, he talks to us about a holy boundary, a divine design, a sacred union, and a holy boundary. So first of all, a divine design. From the beginning of Scripture, we are told, as apart from all other creation, that man was created in a very special way, that we were created and designed in God's image. Men and women both created in God's image. We were created to reflect the image of God in a way that nothing else on earth reflects that image. Psalm 139 says this, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. It says that you were knit together in your mother's womb. There was a purpose and a plan for your design. It is the pinnacle of all God's creation. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that you are God's masterpiece. The idea here is like a fine work of art or, or like a handcrafted instrument that was designed for a purpose and designed to be used by God to, to play beautiful music. So the first thing that we have to understand, it's not just in this passage, it's not just in the beginning in the creation story, but for beginning to end, there is a divine design to humanity that is unique to us. And it is not just Man, it is man and woman, both created in God's image, different and unique, but each one of them containing and reflecting characteristics of the nature of God. And as man and woman come together, they reflect more fully the image of who God is. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for who? For the Lord. He created us, designed us in his image, and he created us for himself and the Lord for the body. And get this, because this is so important. We're going to unpack this just a little bit. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, what this is speaking to, I think, is a really important concept that we see throughout the Bible, and that is that there is a divine union between our soul and our body. Christianity... Judaism, biblical faith, does not teach of a division between soul and body. But in fact, there is a unique design in human nature. This is what is reflective of God, that we are one being, body and soul. And the body is important. The body, the Bible says, will be redeemed. This is talking about a physical, bodily resurrection. This stood in complete contradiction to the dominant philosophy of the day. The philosopher Plato had taught that there was a division between the soul and the body. That, that the soul inside of you, the soul was what was good. The soul was what had a divine spark. But your body was carnal. Your body was bad. Everything about the body was bad. Everything about the soul was good. Christians do not believe that. We reject that teaching. In fact, that teaching from Plato resulted in two camps. There was a camp called the Epicureans, and this was a group of people who said, well, if the body is bad and the soul is good, then we ought to just indulge the body. We ought to just give it everything it wants. 
We ought, to, we ought to feed it every urge, every desire. We ought to just give in to every bit of lust that we have because everything about the body is bad anyway, so you might as well satisfy every desire of the body. That's the Epicurean idea about the body. There is a disconnection between soul and body. Nothing about my body is reflected in the soul. Therefore, I just give the body pleasure. It's only going to live for 80 or 90 years anyway, and then my soul's eternal, so I've just got a little bit of time. I need to seize life, eat, drink, and be Mary for tomorrow we what die so I'm going to please my body now there was another group who also believed the teachings of Plato and this group these were Stoics now these people also believed there was a division between the soul and the body but they believed that rather than gratifying the flesh they believed that you ought to starve the flesh don't give in to any temptation don't give in to any any sort of uh, lust or desire at all you live a very austere, very cold, very, very segregated life because the body is dying, the soul is all that is eternal. So the idea is you starve the body away so that the soul gets bigger and bigger and you rush towards this eternal existence of the soul. But you see, whether or not you were an Epicurean or whether or not you were a Stoic, both, both believe there was a disconnection between body and soul. You still with me? Everybody with me so far? All right. You're like, I thought he was going to talk about sex. I'm getting to it, I promise. (laughs) There's a disconnect between body and soul. The two are completely disconnected. But this is not the Christian teaching. The Christian teaching is that the body and the soul were created by God in God's image. And that it is not just the soul that is eternal, but it is the body that will also be eternal. That in fact, your body, when it dies, is planted, Paul says it's like a seed, and there will come a time where you will experience bodily resurrection just like Jesus did. Jesus and the story of the gospel, the importance of his death, burial, and resurrection points us to the fact that God is redeeming everything, all of creation. God is not just redeeming us spiritually, he is redeeming us physically, He's redeeming our world. He's redeeming the earth. This is core to the understanding of the Christian teaching, that you can't separate the two things. God is about taking what is broken, and he is about restoring it. Secular humanism seeks to diminish humanity to the level of all other creation, all other creatures, that you have a body, you live, you fulfill its urges, its desires, its drives, and then you die and you go to the earth. That is not the teaching of Christianity. But we think the body and the soul are deeply connected because they reflect who God is. Now, here's what's so interesting. For many Christians, both in the first century and throughout, the, throughout church history and even to today, they take Christianity and they adopt a stoic mentality. Now, are you with me? Here's what they do. They believe that there's a, dis- there's a separation between body and soul. And everything about the body is bad. And therefore, all you do is deny the flesh, deny desires. And you just try to live the most austere life, monastic life you can. And that's what makes you a good Christian. Because your soul is what is eternal and your body is going to die. All that is doing is taking Plato and wrapping Christianity around it. Because that is not what Christians believe. Christians believe something much more beautiful, much more holistic, and much more important than that. 
Listen to what, it said, what Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. He says, you are not your own. Okay, remember, you were created in God's image. You were created for God's purpose. You were created by God's design. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Now think about this. He made you. He formed you. By the very nature that he formed you, you already belong to him. But we all know what happens. As we live life and as we make choices apart from God, we separate ourselves from God, we flee from God, we run from God, we find ourselves in bondage to slavery of sin of all kinds. And so what does God do? He comes and he still pays the price to redeem us from that. We were his because he made us, and then we're doubly his because he bought us back through the, with the death and the resurrection of his son Jesus, that he redeems us. What this tells us is that not only are you a divine design, you have value and worth. Your body has value and worth. God formed it and he paid for it. It is valuable. A divine design. The second thing Paul says is a sacred union. A sacred union. Look where he's going with this in verse 15 and following. Now follow along with what he's saying here. First of all, it's important to know that sexuality, human sexuality, has always been connected to religion. All the pagan religions of the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, uh, sexuality was part of pagan religious practices. So when Christianity was spreading to different parts of the world, especially when it got to the city of Corinth and Ephesus, where these, uh, where these religious practices were, were, uh, were prominent, Christians had to relearn, they had to rethink human sexuality because it had been incorporated into pagan worship practices, and part of that was prostitution, temple prostitutes. So remember, Paul is writing to these new believers who have been raised and immersed in this culture. And listen to what he says in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Remember, these are Christians. Your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written... The two shall become one flesh. That is a quote from Genesis and the creation of Adam and Eve. As they came together, they became one flesh, both physically but also spiritually. Together, Adam and Eve formed a better reflection of who God is and their character and the nature of God better than they could on their own. They two came together. They formed one flesh. For it is written, two form one flesh. Jesus himself quoted that verse later on. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That this whole idea of union between a man and a woman is reflective of something much more important. It's reflective of a union of us with God, of the created with the creator. Verse 18, therefore, he says, flee from sexual immorality. And now listen to this. And, and you don't have to be a Christian to believe this. In fact, my guess is most people in the room, no matter what you believe about the Bible, no matter what you believe about Christianity, no matter what your experience has been, you know this statement is true. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Some of the most painful experiences you have had 
have related to sexual sin. Sin that was maybe, uh, maybe you were a victim of some sort of abuse. Maybe you were a willing participant. But it brings about shame. It brings about pain like no other sin. And you know that's true just from your experience. You don't need the Bible to tell you that. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is where? Within you. Do you get what's happening here? Do you see the union that, God is, that, that Paul is talking about? That you're joined together with Christ? That Christ is in you? He is within you? Whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. And one of the things Paul is saying in this is that sex is not primarily about pleasure. Although God did make it pleasurable. Thank the Lord, right? You can laugh at that. It's okay. (laughs) Sex is primarily not about reproduction. Although that's obvious that it is about reproduction, right? Sherry and I have four kids. Clearly, it's about that. But it is not primarily about pleasure. It is not primarily about reproduction. Now get this, because this is going to blow some of your minds. This goes so contrary to to your stoic Christian belief about sexuality that what I'm about to say is going to offend some of you, and I challenge you to go read the Bible for yourself to come to this conclusion. Sex is not primarily about pleasure. It is not primarily about reproduction. Sex is about our holiness and about the deepest longing of our soul to be united with our Creator. That is what sex is about. It's about the quietest it's ever been in this room. (laughs) Now, it's important for us to understand this because it's not good enough for us to simply adopt a stoic attitude about human sexuality. Because ultimately, a stoic attitude about sexuality is not the biblical teaching about sexuality. Now, I understand it may not be the way people have taught it in the last few hundred years, but this is what God says through, through Paul in his word. That this is about something more. It's about something more than pleasure, although pleasure is a part of it. It is about something more than reproduction, although reproduction is a part of it. It is ultimately about a deep desire that you have inside of you to be united, to have intimacy that goes beyond just momentary, temporary pleasure, but that draws you to something that you know in your heart you were designed for. And that is union with your Creator. So this is why Paul says it's so important. This is why it's so critical for us to understand that we are to flee, to run away from sexual sin. Now, I love how Paul says this because Paul doesn't give you the reasoning that your parents gave you, which is just because I said so. Now, can we talk, turn on the TV and watch something else or talk about something else? Paul doesn't even give you the reason that the schools will give you in sex education classes so that you can avoid STDs and unwanted pregnancies, okay? Paul didn't give either of those reasons. Paul doesn't even give you the Sunday school answer. And the Sunday school answer is because sex is for married people, right? I mean, Paul didn't give any of those reasons. The reason that Paul gave, he said, you should flee sexual sin because of the harm it will do to you. Because of the damage it will do to your soul, to your heart. Because like no other sin, sexual sin affects the deepest connection of our body and our soul. 
It is not like any other sin because, because God thinks less of sexual sinners. That's not why. Sin is sin. God looks upon all of us and understands our need for mercy and grace and redemption. So it's, it's not different because God looks differently upon sexual sinners. It's not different because sexual sin is somehow unforgivable. That's not true either. It's not because sexual sin in, it, it doesn't affect us the way other sin does. It's because it affects us like no other sin affects us. Sexual sin will undermine your future intimacy. Some of you know this. The intimacy problems that you experience are because of past sexual sins or maybe because of, uh, of just the fear of sexual sin. Something about that undermines your ability to experience intimacy. It creates obstacles for honesty. The two, well, number one, I don't even have to fill this in blank in, you can tell it. What are the two things people lie about? What are they? Sex and money. That's right, you all knew it, you just need to say it. People lie about sex and money. It is the number one thing people lie about. It is the sin that you are most likely to try to smuggle into future relationships. Yeah, I mean, you're on a first date. You're not going to talk about your sexual history and your sexual, history of sexual sin. But at some point, you recognize that conversation may come up. And it's really uncomfortable when it has to come up. Paul understands and says, listen, the reason you should avoid sexual sin is because it impacts you and it affects you like nothing else. It impacts your ability to experience intimacy. It impacts your ability to be honest. And it will hijack future relationships. This is why in Matthew 19, Jesus talked about sex as the bonding together of two people to form one unit. He quoted Genesis. The two will become, come together and they will be one. He is talking about the permanency of the relationship. Because the relationship is ultimately supposed to be reflective of our desire and our union with Christ. And therefore, it is to be an exclusive relationship it is to be a permanent relationship jesus talks about this as if the uh, the idea of sex as an adhesive and the more you remove it and reapply it to a different partner the less permanent the connection is and what happens inside the human heart inside the human soul the more the more that we take that that bonding agent and we separate it from one person and apply it to another. And the less that it has the ability to keep us together, the more also it divorces inside of our heart and soul sexuality and intimacy. And the two become completely separate. And so we don't connect the idea of the intimacy that we long for with sex, which was supposed to be the very thing that points us to that deep longing inside of us. To give yourself to more than one person is to diminish the importance and the power of that union. Listen to me, young people. This is not about being stoic. This is about being very practical in what the Bible's teaching. If you want to have a successful, permanent relationship, the, one of the best things you can do for yourself is you can promise yourself and your future spouse that you will save yourself and you will save the bond of sexuality for the most intimate relationship, earthly relationship that you have, and that's the relationship with your husband or with your wife. So, a divine design, a sacred union, and finally, he talks about a holy boundary. 
Paul's teaching was definitely a departure from the culture that the Corinthians were immersed in. And so they had a very important question. Listen to what the question was in 1 Corinthians 7.1. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Now, I'm guessing that they're hoping the answer to that question is, no, 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 you got that wrong. Because <laughs> they're saying, so basically, here's what they're asking. So are, 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 you, are you telling us we should be like the Stoics? Because we know the Stoics, we, we get them. We don't like them very much. We'd much rather be like the Epicureans. So Paul, are you telling us that the teaching of Christianity is we should come over here and we should all be like the Stoics? Are Christians against sex? Are Christians, is Christianity a teaching of the Stoic philosophy? And maybe some of you here today would like to know the answer to that question as well. And I would just ask you, have you noticed how many babies we've dedicated lately? That is not what we're teaching. Andy Stanley says this. He says, sex is like fire. In the right context, it is useful and necessary and beautiful and warm. But in the wrong context, it is destructive and deadly. Listen to what it says. It is both wonderful and powerful. The wonderful part makes it worth pursuing. The powerful part makes it worth respecting. And so how do we set healthy boundaries up in our life the holy boundary is the boundary of marriage. Listen to what he says, what Paul, how Paul answers the question. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now every other world religion would stop right there. Listen to me. Every other world religion stops right there. But not the New Testament. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, I cannot express to you what a radical teaching this was. The Corinthians' heads were exploding when they read this. Because women had no rights. They were considered property. Women were not simply objects designed for men's pleasure and were not subject to the wants and whims of their husbands. And it wasn't just women. It was prostitutes. It was any sexual partner they, they pursued. Paul is saying something incredibly radical. No, no, no. Sex is to be kept in the confines of marriage between the husband and the wife. And, and by the way, it is something that, that requires mutual submission. It reflects a sacred commitment of the husband and the wife to mutually submit to one another. This is where he said in Ephesians chapter 5, when he said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, you're to love your wife, wife as Christ loved the church and gave his life up for her. He did not somehow set one above the other, but he said it's mutual submission. That the wife submits to her husband as unto the Lord, and the husband submits to his wife like Christ did for the church and gave himself up for her. And so you have this constant ideal that they are each seeking to submit to one another, to outdo one another in submitting to each other. And then he goes on and says, but what I'm talking, this is a mystery, he says, but I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, this is about that. 
Marriage is ultimately to point you to what God is ultimately trying to do in reuniting us with himself. Marriage is about that. Sex is about that. All of it is pointing us to the ultimate goal. And he goes on to say say this in verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see these boundaries he's setting around. He's very practical. He's saying this is given to you as a gift and within the confines of marriage, it, prov- it is to provide for your needs for one another, but ultimately it is to point you to something beyond itself. And outside of those boundaries, it's dangerous, even deadly. See, sex and marriage have incredibly deep spiritual significance and connotation. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not. But in your reading this week, if you do the reading that's on the front of your worship guide, uh, you'll see it. The Bible actually begins and ends with a wedding. It's bookended. Everything that happens between um, comes after the wedding, the marriage of Adam and Eve as the two are brought together and become one flesh. And then the very end of your Bible ends with a wedding. It says that Jesus, as he, as he descends to the earth, he comes like the bridegroom. And guess who his bride is? It's us. We're his bride. And the union is made complete. Everything has been pointing to this reality. See, this is when we talk about God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this triune God existing in perfect union. What we realize is that life sprang forth from that perfect union. That we were created, all all things were created out of that perfect union. Man and woman created in his image, then come together to form a union which is also life-giving. And so all of it points us back to this desire to be reunited with the creator. The ultimate goal of human design is union with him. Union with all things. And every one of your needs, every one of your urges, every one of your desires, every desire you have for intimacy and union are pointing you to the deepest longing of your heart, to be united with the one who knows you best. The only one who knows everything about you and still loves you and still desires you and still wants you. That is God. That he is drawing you, he's pursuing you and sex is a sacred act that reminds us that points us beyond itself to that ultimate fulfillment in our union with christ everything about your body is temporary have you figured that out yet some of you have some of you haven't yet in fact i know some of you have because some of you said to me i'm not sure i need to come to your uh sermon on sex Everything about your body is temporary. It's fading. It's only pointing you to something else. It's only pointing you to something eternal. Have you ever had such a good meal that you were never hungry again? No. You've never had such a good meal, the ultimate meal, that you never needed to eat again. Your hunger is pointing you, you can satisfy it temporarily, but ultimately your hunger is pointing you for something else. But then you're just going to be hungry again and again and again and again. This is why Jesus said, blessed are those 
who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. The desire of your body to eat isn't just about food. It is ultimately about the deepest hunger of your soul that only the bread of life can satisfy. See, this is why you've never seen enough beauty to never want to see anything else beautiful again. You've never gone and seen a beautiful sunset and thought to yourself, well, there it is. I never need to see anything else beautiful again. You've never gone into an art gallery and seen art that's so beautiful that you said, that's it. I never again need to see anything beautiful. You've never gone to a concert and heard music that was so beautiful that it finally satisfied your longing to hear good music and you just said, I never need to hear music again. What does it do? When you experience beauty, what does it create in you? It creates a hunger for what? For more beauty. That it's drawing you to something else. There's got to be something more beautiful than the most beautiful thing we can see on earth. There's got to be music that is better than the best music we've ever heard. There's got to be a meal that's better than the best meal that we've ever eaten. And the desire that you have for sexual union is the same. It is drawing you to something more. It's drawing you to the heart of your creator who is the only one who can have that kind of intimacy with you. Not just temporary, but to satisfy it for all eternity. Now listen, I know when we talk about this, it has the potential to stir up a lot of emotions and maybe even pain. And I do not expect that a 30-minute conversation about this will help. In fact, it may have done more to dredge it up and cause you to have questions. And so I hope you'll maybe take some time on your communication card. If there's somebody you want to speak with, we would love to connect you with someone who can help you. Maybe you've got a question that we can deal with in our Wednesday night environment. But ultimately, you need to be engaged in conversations about this. One of the ways that Satan wins the victory, and he is winning it in churches, is by trying to cover up sexual sin to make you feel shame and regret and not find the healing that you can find in him. Because the truth is, regardless of your condition, you are valuable. No matter what mistakes you've made, no matter how you've been abused, you have infinite worth to God. And God can redeem even the most painful experiences in your life for his glory and for your good. And sex is a wonderful, beautiful gift given inside the boundaries of marriage. But outside of those boundaries, it is dangerous. This isn't about shame or judgment It is an invitation for you to live in the pleasant place God has marked out for you. And God is a God of redemption and forgiveness and mercy. And he can redeem what's broken in you. Listen, those of you who maybe are high school, college, middle school, young professionals, I just want to end with a quote from Andy Stanley. Uh, By the way, this book that he wrote, um, The New Rules of Love, Sex, and Dating, I would strongly recommend that if you are a young adult or you know and love a young adult, to read this book, use it in small groups, use it in conversations, but listen to what he says. Sexual purity isn't an idea whose time has come and gone. Sexual purity is a strategy. It is an investment in your happiness and the happiness of your future partner. Why? Because purity now paves the way for intimacy later. And I am convinced of this, that the church has to do a better job of speaking out and teaching on these issues. 
because we can't settle for just a Christian version of Stoicism. We have to fully embrace what the Bible is teaching about this. And we have to be willing to do it in a way that's not condemning, that does not provoke shame in people, but that offers God's truth to a culture that is confused and hurting when it comes to these issues. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and pray with me. We're not going to have any sort of public invitation today, but again, I would point you to your communication card and just ask you, if you would, to just mark on there if maybe uh, there's a meeting that we can have to, to help address maybe some of these questions that you have, or maybe you would just submit a question even anonymously for us to talk about Wednesday night at our question and answer session. Maybe you'd come and be a part of a small group this week and engage in the conversation a little more. Maybe you'd pick up this book and read it with a friend, read it with a group. But I I challenge you, I challenge you, if this is one of those boundaries that you have found yourself on the outside of and you recognize and feel the pain that's associated with it, I invite you, I invite you, come back within the boundaries that God has marked out for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for the beautiful design of your creation Even those things that sometimes we're embarrassed to talk about or maybe we even think they're shameful. And yet by your design, the beauty of them is obvious. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us for the way that we've abused it, for the way that we have made it something that is shameful. And Father, I pray that we would be part of a people who are seeking to join you in redeeming all of creation. And Lord, we invite you to do that work inside of us, to restore what's broken in us. And Father, for those who carry shame and guilt today, Lord, I pray that they might receive your grace and mercy. For those who have been victimized and abused, Lord, I pray that you would bring healing and forgiveness to their hearts. And Father, we thank you that our value is not based on our current condition but it's based in the price you paid for us through the death of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you live in the Jacksonville area, we'd love to engage with you during our Wednesday or Sunday gatherings here on campus. If you haven't already, please take a moment and subscribe to this podcast and download our free app by searching SSBC Jacks in the App Store or in Google Play. You can get access to our recent messages and keep up with all that's going on here at Southside. For directions, for service times, and information about our wonderful next-gen children environments, please visit us at ssbc.org.